Last week I talked about grace. God is able to make grace abound toward us. He, um, he has superabundant grace. His, uh, his grace is uh, sufficient. You know, sometimes we feel insufficient. I remember when I got married, I, I got alone with God. I said, God, I've never been married before, and I am clueless. I don't know what makes this girl tick. I don't know the process. Nobody's really coached me so much. I just helped me to do a good job with this. Same thing with facing off with being a dad, being a parent. You know, they hand you a kid, and then you walk out, and they don't have any instructions with it. And I had a nurse in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at the osteopathic hospital. She grabbed my arm, and she shook me. Because I looked like I was about 17 years old. I was older than that, but I looked like a little kid. And she shook me, and she said, you better take good care of that baby. And I said, I'm trying, lady. I haven't even gotten out, the, out of the door yet. But I did pray, and God did help me. And I really appreciate my kids. God called me into the ministry. I said, God, I'm going to have to have you go with me because I don't have any clue about this whatsoever. I'm not from a family of ministry. I, I don't understand uh, you know, uh, what, what you're leading me into exactly. And he assured me with a blessed assurance that, uh, you know, his grace is sufficient. Paul even said, who's sufficient for these things? Who's adequate for these things? We deal with so many feelings of inadequacy, if, we, if the truth be told. You know, I remember I was working at a job while I was going through Bible school, and I told my wife this. I didn't have any assurance from my boss, and I was starting to feel nervous like I wasn't doing a very good job. So I got the gumption to go to him to just kind of humble myself and say, hey, man, I, I, am I doing okay? And, you know, I was all insecure, and I was nervous. And so I started to walk over to him and uh, have this, you know, this encounter I'd been preparing for. And before I could say all this uh, sort of self-deprecating kind of uh, insecure stuff, he said, hey, hey, Jeff, I want to ask you a question. Are there any more people at your Bible school that are like you, that work like you do? Because you're a great worker. I want you to bring them in and get, I want to get some uh, people hired. And I was like, what? I was so full of negativity, I had to just process it. Because in my head, I was, I was so geared toward the other, other thing. So I'm glad I didn't say, you know, hey, am I doing okay, man? But the fact of the matter is, you know, if you do your work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men, then he's the audience we're, we're most desirous to please. And he, in fact, is the one that gives us the strength. We pray for surgeons before they go into surgery and open up somebody that they're, they're gonna, God is going to guide the surgeon's hands with gr grace and mercy. One time a lady in our church, she, she talked to the doctor and said, hey, you know, you've shared all the details with me. This is a serious surgery, and you've told me in clear terms you know, what to expect and the, the hazards of it. She said, would you mind if I prayed for you? And he said, oh, no, that's okay. So she took his hand respectfully, not overly religious, not fanatically, but she just prayed with him that God guide his hands and give him wisdom. And if he gets to a place where he doesn't know what to do, I pray you would help him. You would help him in uh, Jesus' name. So then she went through surgery, went through, through recovery. She was back in her room. The doctor came in making his rounds, and he had a sort of a, a look in his eyes, and he said, you know, your, your friend showed up during your surgery. She said, excuse me? What do you mean? Because that's weird. So you don't want any friends dropping in on you while you're having surgery. <laughs> but the lady said, what do you mean my friend showed up? He said, I was in, I, you had worse problems than I had ever seen 
in my career in surgery. And I literally did not know what to do. And then all of a sudden, I felt like I could do it. And I got direction. And I knew what to, what to squeeze off and what to sponge and what to turn suture and what to move around. And, and, and he described it. And he, he was just stunned at the answer to her prayers. God is gracious and God is merciful. And we cry out to him, you know, this might be the answer to your prayer. You know, God, if you're really there, show me. He might be showing you in a moment like this, showing his grace, showing his mercy. In fact, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to show you something about God showing up. He'll show up. He showed up for that surgeon. Who, who in here thinks that's a great thing? He was at the end of his wisdom, of all his study, all of his anatomy, all of his skill set, but yet God was guiding his hands. You know, you could be in an argument with somebody and God gives you wisdom not to take the bait and get bitter and let it ramp up and just kind of back off. That would be a grace and, a, and mercy from God. And the Bible says, he that shows mercy will be shown mercy. But I want to show you this first of all in Ephesians chapter 2. And this, again, I want to say this, that on the carpool karaoke, James Corden, the British nighttime talk show host, goes out and sings with these uh, amazing singers. And, he, you know, it's a, it's a very entertaining kind of a thing. He did it with, with um, Paul McCartney in Liverpool, and I think it has, you know, millions of views. And uh, he tried to get Kanye West to get on his show for four years. Well, during that four years, Kanye was kind of out there and kind of by his own admission and has had a, uh, has had a real genuine conversion. And, uh, he, you know, he basically said exactly what this here says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he, he, he was dead and now he's alive. He's alive from the dead. Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, he said, you talking to the Ephesians, the, the group of people, might as well be like St. Louis or like St. Charles or like Clayton, Missouri. This was Ephesus over there in the Mid Middle East 2,000 years ago. He said, you, the Ephesian people, were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which... You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And boy, let's unpack this for a minute. Paul is saying, when you're not in connection with God, we're dead. The wages of sin is death. Paul was Jewish. He understood the book of Genesis, written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, where God warned Adam and Eve, Listen, I'm giving you all this amazing free will. I'm giving you the beautiful garden, but don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because if you do, you'll die spiritually. So there was a, there was a tremendous collateral damage. Adam and Eve fell, and there's a fall of man, and society is fractured. Creation is groaning. Wars, rumors of wars. We just came from California. Terrible 10,000-plus acres of fires fueled by the Santa Ana winds and low humidity, houses burned up, earthquakes in places, the hatred of, on society, you can see it. It's the result of sin. And we were dead in our sins. He, this is what Kanye said to James Corden when James Corden said, you know, what about the skeptics that are going to just question whether this is real or not? And he basically said, look, it's, if you're not walking with God, you're dead. And you're, you're, you're the walking dead. But here's what this says here. You formerly walked according to the course of this world. There's a, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. 
There's a broad path that leads to destruction, and there are many on it. And it's a course. There's a course of this world. There's a path. Uh, it says in, in Psalm 1 that we're not to walk in the path of the ungodly. So it says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, who would that be? That's Satan himself. That's the fallen angel who is so filled with a sense of entitlement. He's called the God of this world. He's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And he is, in fact, the enemy. And uh, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, and he has nothing on me. Jesus triumphed over the devil, and he's actually empowered people that give their hearts to the Lord to have the victory and the authority to actually withstand all the harshness and overcome. We are called to be overcomers. We're more than conquerors. Who in here has overcome a few things in your life? That would be the grace of God that helped you. God helped me to overcome things before I became a Christian. And then I became a Christian. And so I can only attribute it to the mercy and the grace of God. Undeserved, unmerited, unconditional, just a, the gift of God's grace. You know, his wrath is poured out on sin, but it was poured out on Jesus who became sin for us. This is why the message of Jesus is so appealing to me because he who never sinned became a sin substitute for us so that we could get set free from the prince of the power of the air, get off the course of this world, and get on track, transfer into a, a, di a different and a, and a vital approach. It's awesome to walk with God. Amen. It's great to have faith. And it says here, it says, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The Bible says later on in Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle is actually spiritual. We have to kind of understand this so we can fight correctly and walk in a, a certain approach uh, that's different than we used to walk. We formerly walked according to the course of this world, but now we're walking in the light, we're walking in the truth, we're walking in love. Amen. Everybody say, I'm walking in love. We walk by faith, not by sight, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And then it says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, everybody say, but God. <laughs> being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. You could just park there for a little while and realize the God we serve never gets depleted. His grace never runs dry. It's an inexhaustible supply. And he is rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So look at this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Peter was practical about death. He said the laying aside of this earthly tent is imminent. We're to ask God to teach us to number our days. We're not to be morbid, but we are to have the end in mind. There's a shelf life on us. We're not immortal and eternal in this body. We live for a period of time, and then there's this afterlife that atheists deny or acknowledge just as some sort of eternal oblivion. But Jesus, on the other hand, said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even if you die, you live. So there's so much scriptural reinforcement about the afterlife, 
But what I'm talking about is the here and now life where there is a change before these Ephesian people died. They, had, they were dead in their sins, but then because Jesus died for them and they related to him, they were made alive. In fact, this water baptism, it says in Romans chapter six, we are buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too would be raised up to walk in newness of life. So that's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than we actually have with our sensory reinforcement. But we walk by faith and we trust God's word and we have his word on it. So he says, I, I saved you so that for the ages to come, he's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace for, for eternity, that he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Look at this. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, there's stories about Jewish guilt. I have a lot of Jewish friends, and they talk about Jewish guilt. But I have Catholic friends, and they talk about Catholic guilt. And, uh, you know, there's evangelical guilt. There's just flat-out sin guilt. You know why? Because we're all guilty. And there's that pervasive thing. But listen, we don't need to transfer a bunch of condemnation into our walk with God, because in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus. That guilt sentence was put on Jesus. He was nailed to the cross, King of the Jews, King of kings and Lord of lords, humbled himself and paid the penalty for humanity's sin. It's exciting to think about this amazing redemption. And this is what we need to think on. We need to think about God's mercy. We that get anxious, we that get nervous, we that get fearful. God has not given us a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. God is so practical. He will help us in the situations we face, whether they're small, medium, or huge. He cares about the little, seemingly little, whispery, insignificant things, the moderate things, and the heavy, pervasive things. Jesus, his kindness showed toward us. Look at the verbiage here. His love for us, his kindness toward us. Think about it, his mercy that he's rich in. With the great love with which he loved us. You know, there are people that possess the ability to communicate their love. Some people are not emotionally available. Some people guard themselves and they don't really convey that they love you. But the Father is unfiltered, full-on disclosure. He sent his, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, relies upon him, surrenders to him, humbles themselves before him, will not perish, but will have eternal life. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in a green pasture. He leads me by quiet waters. He will restore your soul. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. Even in the valley, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me, Lord. You were with that lady when she was having that surgery, and you were, more importantly, with the doctor when he had her life in his hands. He's faithful. And he's telling the Ephesians, you were so lost. And that's what Kanye said. And James Corden went, hmm, you know, and was respectful. And... Uh, I hope the world will get a grasp on the reality 
that this is not a thing of, oh, well, that's good for you. It's a religious thing. You're just prone toward being religious, and you, just, that's, you don't have anything better to do on the weekend, so that's what you do. Just leave me alone. No, the Bible said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, which is eternal separation. It's one of my least favorite doctrine in the Bible, but there is a hell that is eternal to avoid, and there's a heaven to gain that's eternal, and Jesus came, and he doesn't desire anyone to perish, but all to have eternal life. He died for sinners. He didn't die for the self-righteous. And that's what I appreciated about Kanye West's uh, testimony. It's not like I'm the big shot. And he's actually said those kinds of things before, and it seems like he's humbled himself about that. Like, I'm all that, you know, kind of a thing. And I think it's kind of, his ego's kind of been laid at the altar or something like that. And, you know, Christians judge and, you know, and that kind of thing. Leave them alone. Let's trust that God will do a great work in them. I wish people had left Bob Dylan alone. You know, just leave these guys alone. Let them be out there in their particular cultural platform. And let's believe God they'll live for God all the rest of their lives. Let's believe the best for them. I'm a mercy guy. I, as a Christian, operate in mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We're going to finish the service with that James chapter 2 verse. This is a hinge point in my beliefs. He that has forgiven much loves much. I had impossible to get over sin in my life when I was a teenager. I was lost. And by that I mean uh, I needed a rescuer to save me because you're not saved by your works. No matter how much I tried to, would try to reform, no matter how much I would try to give myself to righteous causes, the, the Bible says all our righteousness would be like filthy rags in God's sight. It's like making a statement. I can do it without and bypass the system you created. You sent Jesus to die for sinners, and yet I'm going to try to do it on my own without you. No, I full-on need Jesus. Jesus. I had a boating accident. We had to be helivacked from the island we were on, 25 miles out to sea, uh, to a hospital in the heart of the hood in Los Angeles. And I was totally dependent on the people that packed us up and put us on that. And it was humbling. I was actually trying to help him get me in the in the helicopter and I had broken ribs and my sternum was all shifting around and I was in total agony. But it was like, he said, stop, let me do it. And he, they picked me up and put me in there and I just, you know, I, I was totally, totally dependent on them. And uh, I was totally, you know, I reached a point where I realized, the Ephesians apparently reached a point where they realized I can't be saved by my works. It's not you know, how many times I go to church, how much Bible I read, how nice I am to people, how much I sacrifice and give, and those kinds of things are all super important. But don't let the cart get ahead of the horse. The first thing must be an encounter with God's mercy and grace, realizing apart from him we could do nothing, that we need him. We've, the detachment causes such a loss, but the connection creates harmony and amazing blessing. I got saved in Southern California in 1972 in the midst of cultic things, the hippie thing, love-ins, flower power, weed, you know, uh, race riots, anti-war demonstrations, uh, concerns about air pollution, water. They were saying, like they're saying now about global warming, they were saying we would not have water to drink in so many years. There was this, it's a tool to make people frightened about this creation. And, and it, when, when you're worshiping the, crea the creation rather than the creator, you get all freaked out. But you realize God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
He's the one that set the earth on its axis. He's the one that created our solar system. He put the moon up there so we could have a tide, which is trippy. And even the sun has some gravitational pull that contributes to our seasons and our tide. And it's awesome how God, it's so complex and beautiful. And God, you know, I remember when, listen, we, if we were going to have the earth fall apart, it would have happened in the 1980s with mall hair, when people were using so much hairspray that it poked a hole in the ozone layer down by Australia, and people kept getting skin cancer. Do you know that just a couple of weeks ago, I heard that that thing's all sealed up again? So just don't get, when hairspray becomes popular again, stay away from the hairspray, people. But, they, but, but remember that? It was causing a problem. But by the grace of God, we can trust God. We, we should be good stewards, by the way, not spew a bunch of toxins into the air, take care of things. I like it that they dealt with photochemical smog on cars by making catalytic converters, by putting platinum on the, the exhaust systems, and turning all that noxious, those noxious fumes into harmless vapor. I'm excited about the fact that that can be done, and I pray we have wisdom going forward because we're going to have a baby boom in our church they said this is the lowest birth rate in 30 years, but I believe we're going to see a great abundance of births in our church. We're going to see a bunch of new births of people coming to the gospel, and we're going to see a lot of people having babies because hopeful people have babies. And the scripture actually urges us to be fruitful and multiply, not in a ridiculous way, but as a, in a spirit-led way. Let's have a bunch of babies. I'm not looking at my wife because I'm not talking to us because we've had our babies. Listen, Jesus is the one that rescues. He's the one that brings us into a new birth. It, look at the kindness, his great love, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. He came and revived us when we were ungrateful, undeserving. We were not even, in most cases, even seeking after him. He comes and knocks on the door of our heart. He comes and prompts us and says, hey, man, I want to alert you. You need Jesus. And in my early days, I had the wonderful experience of running into not one, but two real Christians going into a genuine environment. I had a little culture shock. It was like, whoa, because it was different than the formal thing I had experienced. And yet I felt like either these people are whack or it's real. There's no middle ground. And I, I recognized after really seeking it out, hey, this is legit. And it's not cultic. I'm not drinking any Kool-Aid. And, and there's not some Swami there, a guru hovering over me. It's Jesus, unfiltered, authentic, historical, biblical, fully God, fully man, King of kings, Lord of lords, shed his blood to die for the sins of the world, and he is merciful. And mercy is what I'm talking about tonight. He said, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And this is, in fact, the Greek word for grace. It's charis. That's where we get the word charismata or charismatic. It's a word meaning gifts. When they say, oh, that's a charismatic person who owns that car dealership. He's so charismatic. What they're saying, they think it's like a very colorful type of dynamic personality. What it means is giftedness. And then there's also another definition for grace. It's favor, favor, where there's a touch of God on your life that's inexplicable, where everywhere you go, you're surrounded with favor, like a shield. You're highly, he told Mary, you're favored of the Lord. 
Blessed among women. Why? She responded to God and yielded to the grace of God. She flowed with the mercy and grace of God. These scriptures put these Ephesians in touch with. These guys were Roman, Greco, intellectual, sophisticates, idolaters, hedonists, binge eating, crazy behavior, lusts, pseudo-sophistication. And they come to this place where... this truth of this one true God in the midst of all this pluralism, this simple, essential reality of sin and righteousness of God and the devil in the midst of all this sophistication and all these constructs of all these philosophical angles and God gets them right in the heart and they bow their hearts and their lives to Jesus. Nicodemus, the prestigious man, he would be like Kanye West prestigious, with a high social position, Jesus says to him the same thing that he says to the lowly woman at the well. In that male-dominated period, Jesus asked her for a drink, and she said, uh, you know, I, you know, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for water, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. She said, what are you talking about? So he began to just minister to her such important I mean, people have quoted those truths out of John chapter 3 about Nicodemus and John chapter 4 about the woman at the well, showing the full spectrum of God's love. He doesn't show favoritism toward the lowly and down and out, and he doesn't show favoritism toward the up and up and outer. He loves the whole world. Jesus cares about all of society, all of the nations, all the ethnicities, both genders, all ages, all the time, and he's rich in mercy. We're in the age of grace. This is what the dispensationalists, the theologians call the the age of the church, the church age, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Said, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit on your sons and your daughters. Your young will see visions. Your, Your elders will dream dreams. And we're still doing that. Even in old age, it says in Psalm 92, we'll bear good fruit. We'll be full of sap and very green. Look at somebody and say, you're full of sap. Your leaf will not wither. People are looking for facelifts and lines to be drawn. If you get hydrated with this living water, you will never thirst again. And it's a promise that's very valid and real. It's reiterated over and over and over again in the Bible. Jesus is the forgiver, not the condemner. He's the stabilizer, not the disruptor. He's the healer, not the torturer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, period. He's the light of the world. He's the hope for mankind. He's the help for every household. He's the dignifier of every person. He loves you. He's a lifter. He's so faithful that even when we lapse and we're not faithful, he's faithful always. He can't deny himself. He's not a man that he would lie. He's fully trustworthy. There's no one like him. He's without parallel. He's transcendently greater, high and lifted up, exalted above all everything else. Jesus is so deserving of our focus. He's so wonderful and he is practical. He will help us. He's faithful to help us. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, I want to show you what Jesus says about uh, being proactive about mercy. It gives us a kind of a dichotomy in Matthew chapter 5 and James chapter 2. It's a point-counterpoint, and I want to just finish with this because 
how many of you realize God is rich in mercy? He's not mediocre. He's not halfway with mercy. Mercy is his big deal. In fact, in the throne room, there's something called the mercy seat. We're to draw near to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What do we do? What's the prerequisite for salvation? Being a sinner. What's the requirement? Humbling yourself and admitting that. And then you're off, you're, you're off to the races. It's the start of something big. The Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you. He said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to save those who are crushed in spirit. There's hope for mankind. I told my wife, we're going to see lead singers get on the platforms and use the gospel. This would be one of the first indicators. We're going to see more and more of this in the various stratas of the pinnacles of the world, education systems, business systems, art and entertainment, media. You're going to see people unashamedly stand up for Jesus. There's going to be tremendous insight with this. There's going to be a wave that's going to, it's already started. We're in the beginnings of it. We're going to see a great harvest of souls amongst the lost, and we're going to see a rededication and revival amongst the saved. This church, I'm committed to winning people to the Lord and building up believers. I want to evangelize the lost, and I want to equip the saved. I want to deploy people that are mercy-oriented, where we're not filled with critical judgmentalism. We're not coming off like self-righteous meanies bony religious finger pointing at people because you know I heard that three more are pointing back at you right say this with me but for the grace of God go I so look it says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy there's a principle there we just we just go out with I'm going to be merciful here I'm going to be well but I'm the disciplinarian you know mercy mercy Mercy. Let's go to James chapter 2, and I'm going to finish right here. I've, I've got just one last verse, I think. James chapter 2, and we're going to finish up in the book of James. James is the Lord's brother, and he's writing to believers. And a lot of this is, in the context, uh, telling believers to straighten up and behave properly. Since Jesus has done these great things for you, go out and live it. That's basically what this book says. And so in this context, he says, verse 12 and 13, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So speak and so act. James is telling us how to talk. In fact, in James chapter 3, he tells us to bridle our tongues. In James chapter 1, he says that if we say we're religious and yet we don't bridle our tongue, but we deceive our own heart, then our, man's, our religion is worthless. You know, words have power. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words do hurt. And uh, we need to learn to understand we're going to be judged for our, uh, you know, idle words. So we need to make sure that our, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart is consistent with the Bible. And this is huge, this thing about mercy. This is what I want to finish with. First of all, God is rich in mercy. And mercy is we, we don't get what we deserve. It's mercy. It's like you're forgiven. There was this true story about Washington when he was a general. And a man walked for something like 72 miles. And he got to General Washington and he said, I've come here to plead the case for a, a person you have imprisoned that has a death sentence on him. 
And he said, why would I bother to release your friend here to you? Oh, he's not my friend. He's my harshest critic and one of my worst enemies. But I'm telling you out of principle that he's not guilty. And it, General Washington was so moved that by the man interceding and intervening for someone that was harsh to him and unkind to him. And it touched his heart. It touched his heart. Remember in Kansas City back in the 70s, there was a guy who got caught up with cocaine. It was the early days of the cocaine problem. He actually was using and dealing, caught, uh, you know, peddling it. And uh, he had, had a real come-to-Jesus repentance moment. Like a lot of amazing things were happening in, in a lot of pockets of society and a lot of lost kids, a lot of lost souls were coming to Jesus. And he got up with his lawyer and said, I am not saying this for manipulative reasons, and I deserve whatever sentence you give me, but I just want you to know I've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He's changed my life, and I'm different than I was. But judge, you can, because you, when he said, do you want to you know, get an opportunity to speak? The judge was so moved that he said, I'm going to give you probation, and I'm going to, based on this, and I'm convinced that this is real, I'm going to give you mercy. Hallelujah. Hallelujah for mercy. Well, was he manipulating? Was he lying? I hope not. But I do know Jesus does change people's lives. And, uh, you know, the judge was in it for the reasons of trying to help society and thought this one doesn't need to get incarcerated since they've made a change. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law, not by the bondage, not by the law, the letter of the law that kills, but by the law of liberty. We're, we're liberated to walk in love. We're liberated to be servants. We're liberated to forgive. And we're liberated to be kind. Not to be doormats, not to be manipulated, not to be sucker punched and abused, but nor are we called to be vindictive, full of strife, full of resentment, harsh critics. Uh, judge not lest ye be judged, it says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It says here, look at this. It says, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Judgment will be merciless. Remember that story, I don't have time to turn to it, but the guy that owed uh, a lot to his boss and the boss said, hey, I want you to, you know, I'm going to, and you need to pay off all your accounts. Well, I can't, well, I'll just sell you and sell your wife and sell your kids. And the guy fell at his feet and said, please, please be merciful. And the guy was, the boss was merciful. And then that same slave got up and found another slave that owed him like 25 cents. This guy owed him billions of dollars. This guy owed him 25 cents. And he beat him and threw him in jail. And when the boss found out about it, he got really mad at the merciless servant. And he got turned over to the tormentors. God's not a tormentor, but being judgmental and merciless puts us in a bad place. Listen, we don't have a lot of control over society or our country or the world right now, but we do have something to say about the words and the actions of our own lives. And it has to start somewhere. It might as well start with you and me. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Look, look what it says here. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You delight in showing mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm going to call the musicians back up. We're going to finish now, but I, I just want to get this over to you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In the Psalms, it says mercy and truth have joined together, have kissed one another. 
So the truth is we're lost and there's a harsh judgment over our lives, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So this is where we forgive people. This is where we unhitch our wagon off of previous, you know, attitudes of resentment and just say, I forgive. Jesus on the cross this is the only person in any religion, a leader in any religion who was, who, who was crucified and died unjustly for something he didn't do. And while he was suffering on the cross for other people's sins, he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And also, additionally, some of us have to say, forgive them, Father, for they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's all stand up on our feet. Everybody say mercy. mercy. See, God is rich in mercy. I'm not envious of Kanye because, man, he has to pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> He's got his own set of, he has no anonymity. He's judged every second by people who don't even know him. But let's not be haters. Let's not be judgmental. Judge not lest you be judged. 